Okay, there we go. Let me do a couple of disclaimers here for you. Uh, as we look at this tonight, what I want you to be very careful of is that, that what we'll be talking about in this series is what's called the word faith or the prosperity movement. It is not the charismatic movement. It is not the, Pente- the classical Pentecostal groups. Uh, though you'll find a lot of these come out of those groups and stuff, uh, I carry what we're about to say and associate this with every charismatic group out there because it will not fit. One of the, one of the strongest biblically-based charismatic groups in the United States, a group called the Calvary Chapel. There's one here in town also, and they, they, they just stick right to the Word. So what I'm saying is don't associate this because some of the names are going to be names that you'll recognize who either came out of classical Pentecostalism or came, came out of the charismatic group. But they, they have left those groups, is what I'm telling you. Uh, they have left those things and they began to teach what you're going to see. Some of the things that we're going to talk about over the next several weeks are just incredible teachings when you compare them to what the Word of God teaches. And, and again, what is our intention? Our intention is to make sure you're equipped and mostly with how to know what the Scripture itself says uh, about these different matters that, that, are, that are within. So we've looked outside the organized church. For the next several weeks, we'll look inside the organized church at some of the teachings that are found that are not biblical teachings. Um, secondly, you may get mad at me. Well, you know, because I may, I, I'm the kind of guy who will call names and then quote what they say. Because I don't mind if people call my name and quote what I say. Okay? So, if they said it, then let them defend it. Uh, if you like a certain person that I quote, uh, well, maybe you ought to do a little bit deeper digging. Because I always tell you, what I always tell you even about me, that you check me out. I'm not the authority. The Word is the authority. So, so many times what we do is we, we, we find someone we like, we say, well, so-and-so said it, so it must be true. No, we didn't need to find out if it's true. So, uh, I just want to give you that little warning and stuff. So, if I quote somebody that, that you are really admiring stuff, uh, well, I'm, I'm kind of of the belief that maybe you need your eyes open about some of the stuff that they're teaching. Because if it's not biblical, we've got a real problem. A real problem. Especially when a lot of people are following them. So, Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20 with me this evening. And we're going to begin looking at uh, uh, the, the title for tonight is Turning Truth into Mythology. And a little bit I'm going to have Linda read a, uh, a fairy tale to you that's actually tied in with a lot of... It's, it's, a lot of their teachings are placed in this fairy tale and it, it comes out pretty incredibly. But you'll, you'll hear it in just a few moments, Okay. But let's begin by looking at God's warning to us. Why, why do we do this? You know, some people say, why can't you just, and I've had people tell me, why can't you just live and let live? Because truth matters. And it really matters when someone claims to speak the truth in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they come into our territory. If someone rejects Jesus Christ, then they have clearly identified themselves. And clearly, anybody can believe what they want to believe. Please understand that. People can choose to believe what they want to believe. And those groups that we looked at that do not believe in Jesus being the Messiah, they tell you that. They, they're genuine about that. Although we disagree with them, at least they're genuine about it. Now we're talking about people who claim the name of Jesus and attribute things to, to the Bible that the Bible does not teach. 
As a matter of fact, what you're going to find, I think, is you're going to find many of the teachings have to do with what we call metaphysics. That is pretty much mind over matter type approach. You'll find the occult. You'll find witchcraft. You'll find all these kind of things, and they're, they're very aberrant teachings that, that I want you to look at. So why do we do this? Because Jude told us that we need to defend the faith that was once and for all given to the saints. And especially when there are aberrant teachings that find its way into the church. Now, every church that I've been a pastor of, I've gone into the library, and I found, I found books by, all of the, by some of these authors. And I've had people tell me at the door and stuff like that, well, pastor so-and-so said this and so-and-so said this, and, and you know, you and him are, you know, type thing, and I'm, you know, my, my thought is, you know, you're not listening very well. Be very careful. Do people like a lot of these people? Of course they do. That's why they're popular. Okay? But popularity does not equate to truth. Truth is truth. And we're called to deal with this. Peter tells us that we're supposed to expose the false teachers and the false prophets. That's not just to say, everybody just do whatever you want. When they come in the name of Jesus and profess things that are of Christ, that are not of Christ, we need to say something about it. And especially because many of their teachings are found. Many of these books are found in almost every Christian bookstore you go into. And so you have, you have aberrant teachings in our Christian bookstore under the label of Christian teaching, and they're not Christian teachings at all. Important for you all to understand that. So, let's see what the Bible says. Let's look at God's warning about false prophets, about false teaching among his people. Uh, Acts cha- well, let me just read Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 28, and here's what he said. He said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, and not sparing the flock. Also from among yourself, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch, and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn, every, warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I want you to see the warning that Paul gives. When does he give this warning? When does he give this warning? Anybody? Well, in the first century. Already. We're talking about an, an infant church, and already Paul is concerned about false teachers coming into the church. He calls them... Paul didn't have the, you know, the, the how to win friends and influence people attitude. He called them ravenous wolves. And he says, what the, what's their intent? To build up disciples for themselves. Not disciples for Jesus, but disciples for themselves. Now, God has always been concerned with his people hearing the truth, receiving the truth, and following the truth. That being said, he's always been concerned that among those who speak his truth would be those who are found that do not speak the truth, but, but speak supposedly in his name. Look in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah with me. Jeremiah chapter 23. And, and there are a whole lot of verses we could look at in Jeremiah. So I just picked out a few here in chapter 23. Look at verse 16. He says this. Oh. I'd like to read the whole thing, but here. Well, I'm going to start with verse 15. I didn't give this. Here's what it said. Therefore says the Lord 
of hosts concerning the prophets. Behold, I feed them with wormwood and make them drink water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profaneness has gone out into all the land. That's quite a statement. Here's what he says, verse 16. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart and not from the mouth of the Lord. That's a crucial thing that you need to understand. False prophets speak. They, they know how to sound prophetic. They know how to sound legit. But what does God warn His people? He says they don't speak from God's mouth. They speak from their own mouth. You say, okay, got that. How do I know? What, what, what have we taught you over and over again? How do you know? You've got to know the Word. You don't check out a prophet by whether you like what they say, whether it makes you comfortable what they say, whether you, know, you like them. You check it out according to the Word. If it squares up with the Word, it's acceptable. If, it, if it's contrary to the Word, it needs to be, as, as Jeremiah says here, it needs to be rejected. Now remember, I just want to say this very clearly. It is possible for any teacher, preacher, evangelist to be incorrect in something. Everybody got that? I have to confess you, I've been incorrect many times. I have. Not intentionally teaching false, but where I was in my walk with the Lord, teaching things that I believe to be true, and I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit is greater than the speaker who speaks, because the intent is to speak the truth and the fullness of the truth, it's a different matter altogether than someone who intentionally tries to deceive with false prophecies, speaking as if God had led them to speak when God had never spoken to them at all. That's what Jeremiah is talking about. Look with me in verse, in verse 21 in the same chapter. He says it. This is God speaking. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they speak. Okay? Nothing's changed under the sun, everybody. Everybody got that? There are false prophets around us all over the place. But God has not left us as, as a people who can be easily, if we, if we choose, easily led astray. If, you, if you're in the Word, you know the Word. When you hear that which is not of the Word, you're going to know it. You ever done that? You ever listened to someone and they've been teaching? Or you, you read something that someone wrote and stuff, and, and you said, there's something wrong with here. And maybe in that moment you didn't know exactly what was wrong, but it drove you to God's Word. What does God's Word say about this? It drove you to God's Word and you found out what they're saying does not square with God's Word. As it should be, church. As it should be. Alright? Look with me there at verse 26 and here's what he says. He says, How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own hearts. Now, God does not give latitude here. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, what was, what was the punishment for someone who was found to be a false prophet? Anybody? It was stoning to death. It was a capital offense. Why would this be so? You ever thought about that? We say, that's a little bit drastic. Seems a little bit drastic to us. But why would it be so? For the very thing that, that, that Jeremiah says here. He says, these men stand and they say, thus saith the Lord. So who are they attributing what they're talking to about? God. They, 
There's a difference between a teacher who's mistaken and someone who claims to be a prophet who speaks for God. A genuine prophet, a genuine prophet does speak for God. In other words, the words that they speak come from God Himself. They're not interpreted. They're not, how do I want to say, they're, they're, not, they're not His impression. They are God-given words to that person. That's why we hold the Bible so dear. We say, when God spoke to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Malachi, and we go round and down the list, we say, these are God's very words. These men were not just speaking their opinion of the times they live in. They were not even just teaching about the times they live in. They were actually speaking the words of God for their times. So, a prophet proclaimed that what they were saying were God's very words. Now, if a false prophet proclaimed that what he was saying was God's very word and they turned out to be wrong, who has he made a liar? You see why it's, it's so important to God? He's made God out the liar. Thus saith the Lord. But what I say after that does not square with what God does and does not come about. Well, I just said God said that. It is, by the way, a breaking of one of the commandments. How many of you think that taking God's name in vain merely means don't cuss? That's how we were raised, wasn't it? Don't take God's name in vain. That means you don't cuss. Okay? It really has nothing to do with cussing at all. It means to falsely attribute to God that which is not of God. That's taking God's name in vain. That's what the false prophets do. That's what the false teachers do. And by the way, I believe they know that they're doing it. I believe they know that they're doing it. Or they've done it for so long, they have, like, like their father, and Jesus called their, their father Satan. Like their father, they've, been, they've, they've got to a place where they deceive themselves to believe that what they're saying is actually true. And that's a terrible place for somebody to get. Alright? So, Jeremiah spoke about it. We read in Acts, Acts chapter 20. And I just want to look again at verses 30 to 31, what Paul says in his time. He says, he says and notice who he describes here. He said, and, and from among where? Yourselves. He's not talking about outside the church. He's talking about in the church. And here's what he says. And from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things. Any other word that some of your translations have there for perverse? Say that again. Okay. Anybody else have anything else but perverse? Okay, distorted. One other translation says misleading things. Distorted, perverse, misleading. What's that? Twisted. Twisted things, okay? So when you look at that, he says these people will come from among you. Don't be surprised that in the church the devil's at work. And don't be surprised, we're, we're warned, even in Paul's writing, that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And because Satan does, his messengers do the same thing. A false prophet is not going to come to our church or any church or some coliseum or whatever or you know some book signing thing and say, you know what, I'm the latest false prophet to come down the road. I'm the latest false teacher to come down the road. My father is Satan. I'm, a, I'm deceiving you as an angel of light, but really I am, I am of the kingdom of the prince of darkness. No false prophet is going to tell you that at all. What are they going to tell you? I'm speaking for God. The Holy Spirit is leading me. So we say, well, if they say that, they must be okay. No, 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 no. 
Listen to what they say. Evaluate what they say. Be discerning in what they say. And yes, judge what they say. Oh, wait a minute, Pastor, we're not supposed to judge. Well, if you don't judge, your life is going to be a mess. You judge things all the time, don't you? We're talking about judging someone's salvation. We're talking about judging what they say. And you have to do that or you'll be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. So he says here, again, he said, Also from among yourself men will rise up speaking perverse things. And then their intent, I said this, to draw away disciples for themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. It was clearly part of Paul's ministry. Not just to, to equip the church, prepare the church, help them understand what the gospel was, to lead them how to share the gospel, to do all those things. But it was also clearly his ministry to warn the church of these false teachers that would come about and would come in and try to deceive the body of Christ. If you have a deceived church, you've got a church that's also going to be reaching out in deception. And what will the world receive? They will receive a perverted message. A distorted message. By the way, in some cases, no gospel at all. No gospel at all. And you know, I'm convinced that the hardest people to, to talk to are religious-minded people. And we don't want to create another class of religious-minded people. We want, to, we want people to have a relationship with Jesus, don't we? All right. So, then take your Bibles and turn over to Second Peter. As we continue to see the warnings that the Word of God gives us. And again, there's so many that I give you. I've just given you these three. Second Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Here's what it says. He says this, But there were also false prophets among the people. So he's looking in the past. There were false prophets among the people. Then he's going to look at the future. Even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in, what, what's the word there? Destructive. Here's a word. That we'll deal with a lot. Heresy. Heresy. Anything that is not pure doctrine is heresy. Okay? Now, heresy is determined upon the standard by which you're judging. Matter of fact, one of the largest growing groups today, we, we discuss Islam. Islam. There are certain things that if you say against Islam, if Islam is your standard against Islam, you can be branded a heretic against Islam. Everybody understand that? You might say, well, I don't believe Islam's true. Not my point. What's true and what's not true. Whatever you base it on, whatever standard you base on, anything that goes away from that is heresy. Okay? Many of our forebears who, who, who we believe are genuinely born-again Christians were persecuted and put to death by the Roman Catholic Church for heresy. Because they did not abide by the teaching of the magisterium and of, and of, of the edicts of Rome. Okay? Were they heretics biblically? I don't think so. But they were heretics according to the Roman Catholic faith. Now, when Paul uses that term here, his standard is the Scripture. And usually when you hear me say it, that's my standard. If I call someone a heretic, and I have, I know, I've called people a heretic even in their own community. Why? Because they're heretics. Okay? According to what the Scripture says, they're heretics. You know? So, and by the way, most of them that I call heretics don't mind telling you that they don't believe what the Scripture says. So they're identifying their heretics. It just keeps, you know, you don't have to beat around the bush. You're a heretic. Okay? So, 
But again, I know I'm not gentle in that way. Pastor, I wish you were more gentle in that way. Well, we can do that. Well, never mind. I don't want to get into that. Let's just go on. So, even they, they will bring in destructive heresies. And look at this. Even denying the Lord who bought them. And you're going to see some, some quotes that are going to deny the Lord Jesus Christ from inside his own church. Or what professes to be his own church. Even denying the Lord who bought them. And bringing on themselves swift destruction. And look at what it says. And many will follow. It's the time we live in. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now here we have another word. Blaspheme. What does it mean to blaspheme? Well, it's very similar to taking the Lord's name in vain. To blaspheme God is again to attribute to God either something that He did not do or to attribute to someone else something that God did do. Remember the charge against Jesus when He claimed to be God? You're a blasphemer. And by the way, if he wasn't God, he was a blasphemer. But there are also the blasphemers who attribute things to God or the Holy Spirit that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit at all. That's blaspheming. Okay, so it works both ways. Either attributing something to God or claiming something that only belongs to God for yourself. Both those things are blaspheming. Okay, so he says here, he says, And many will follow ways because of whom the way of truth is blasphemed. By covetousness, isn't it interesting? You're going to talk about wanting things. And you're going to see this as we study this. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Okay? So, I've given you three passages. Couldn't give you many more. Time keeps us from doing that. Clearly, God is concerned about truth. Would you agree with that? Clearly, God has set the standard of truth. Now, not everybody agrees with this, what the standard of truth is. I understand that. But for the biblical church, the true biblical church, our standard of truth is the Word of God. And anything that varies from the Word of God ought to be troublesome from us. Whatever source it comes from. Again, we looked at the non-Christian religions last fall. That both their, their truths were troublesome to us because they don't square with the Word. Okay? And now as we look within the organized church... Some of, the tr- some of the truths that are going to be put out there ought to be troublesome to us also because they do not square with words. So God is concerned about truth. God is also concerned about identifying the false teachers and the false prophets that are among us. Because why? Why would, why would, you, why would you suppose that God would want us to identify the false teachers and the false prophets? I mean, just to get back at them, to say, you're wrong and I'm right? Why? Well, the answer is because there are always the babes. There are always the babes. You know, if someone was to come into your house and, and you had your children in there or your grandchildren in there and they wanted to hurt your children or your grandchildren, what would you do to protect them? Wouldn't you do just about anything to protect your children and your grandchildren? You would. And we have to have that attitude when it comes to these things because these are, as the scripture these are destructive heresies. These are damning heresies. These destroy people, not just temporally, but they can destroy people for eternity. So God is concerned about that. And, and uh, again, we, we need to identify the false teachers and identify the false teaching. Now, with that in mind, let's begin. Take your little paper out there that I gave you. And just to give you a taste of where we're going to be going over the next several weeks, I've given you some some of the proponents of the word faith, the prosperity movement, that's very, it's huge. 
You know it's huge. Some of these names are huge. And I'm not giving you all. These are just some of them. Okay? And, and just giving you a taste of, of some of their teaching. And I like you to just listen to these as I read them, read along if you will. And, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time evaluating them tonight, because we'll be evaluating things in the weeks to come. Uh, but let these things set in on you, what are, what are being taught to people. E.W. Kenyon, one of the fathers of the modern prosperity, word faith movement, says this, The believer is as much an incarnation as was Jesus of Nazareth. So uh, just let that set in on you. Kenneth Hagin, another famous preacher, put this, Man was created on terms of equality with God. And he can stand in God's presence without any consciousness of inferiority. <laughs> Kenneth Copeland, who is, calls Kenneth Hagelin his father in the ministry. He says this, and this is out of one of his uh, sermons. He says, I was shocked when I found out who the biggest failure in the Bible actually is. The biggest one is God. I mean, he lost his top ranking, most anointed angel, the first man he ever created, the first woman he ever created, the whole earth and all the fullness therein, a third of the angels at least, that's a big loss, man. Now the reason you don't think God, think of God as a failure is he never said he's a failure. And you're not a failure until you say you are one. Benny Hinn. You could write a, well someone already had written a book on him, so, so, <laughs> When you were born again, listen to me. When you were born again, the Word was made flesh in you. And you become flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. Don't tell me you have Jesus. You are everything He was, everything uh, He is, and everything He's going to be. And I made a typo there. But that, that part is, you're everything that He is. You can fix that there. Wow. You ought to say Wow. Joel Osteen. Now, here's where some of you are not going to start liking me when I talk about Brother Joel and, and Sister Joyce. They're quoted in our church far too often. Here's what Joel Osteen said. It's not enough to simply see it by faith or in your imagination. You have to begin to speak, speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. We're going to talk about that one day, creative power of words. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is a spiritual principle, and it works whether you are saying, whether what you're saying is good or bad, positive or negative. Folks, if you want a, if you want a clear definition of metaphysics, right there it is. That's metaphysics. It's not biblical doctrine, it's metaphysics. Joyce Meyer, who teaches that Jesus suffered in hell, and that's what she's referring to here. It says, there is no hope of anyone going to heaven unless they believe this truth I'm presenting. You cannot go to heaven unless you believe with all your heart that Jesus took your place in hell. Creflo Dollar. Interesting name. Creflo Dollar, who, who actually calls Kenneth Copeland his father in the ministry. He says this, because you came from God, you are God's. Not, not you belong. It's not possessive. You are gods. You are not just human. And then Frederick K.C. Price, actually a former Baptist minister, he said this, Do you think that the punishment for our sins was to die on the cross? 
If that were the case, the two thieves could have paid your price. No, the punishment was for Jesus to go to hell itself and to serve time in hell separated from God. Full-blown heresy. Everything on this page. And we'll be talking about this thing. And uh, so uh, I've asked Linda to do something for me. And I want you to just sit back. And you're going to listen to a story. It's not about a band named Jed. Although it could be. And uh, what this story is, is it actually is, it's footnoted. You'll find this if you want a copy of it. Hank Hanegraaff wrote this story. And he wrote this story compiling the different doctrines of the prosperity teachers. Okay? And uh, everything's footnoted, as even, even what I've given you and stuff. It's what they've said. And I'm going to have Linda read this to you. And, uh, you, again, it's about five pages, six pages long, so you need to sit back and just... Uh, but you still go to sleep, okay? <laughs> she reads better than you watch the We'll see, right? Is this okay here? Okay. Once upon a time, long, long ago, on a faraway planet, there lived a good God. This God was very much like you and me, a being who stands about six foot two inches to six feet three inches tall, weighs a couple of hundred pounds, and had a hand span of about nine inches. This God's wisdom and power is so great that he literally had the ability to speak things into existence. In fact, this God could actually visualize beautiful images in his mind and then turn them into reality by utilizing a special power called the force of faith. One day, this God had a cosmic brainstorm. He decided to use the force of his faith to create something superb and special. He decided to bring a whole new world into existence. This was not just going to be any old world. It was going to be the most fantastic world imaginable. In fact, this world would become so wonderful that it would actually feature an exact duplicate of the mother planet where God lived. After carefully visualizing every detail of this wonderful, wonderful world, God went into action. Releasing the force of his faith like a whirlwind, God spoke into existence the planet he saw in his mind's eye. And boy, was God excited. Looking down with fondness on this classic new creation, he named the planet Earth. And this was only the beginning. Suddenly, a host of brilliant new ideas began to flood into God's creative consciousness. He began to visualize vast oceans and springs abounding with water. He saw magnificent mountains and fertile fields. His mind produced flashes of thunder and lightning. Plants, flowers, and trees blazed in rapid succession through his thoughts. Now on a roll, God began to visualize life replete with beautiful birds and creatures of every size and shape imaginable. Yet this was merely the beginning. For after five days of vivid visualizations, God's mind moved into yet another dimension. On day six, his imagination went wild, and in his mind's eye, God saw the crowning jewel of his creation. As the details developed within his fertile mind, God suddenly found himself focused on an exact duplicate of himself. Throwing all caution to the wind, God spoke, and suddenly out of the pristine soil of planet Earth, there arose another God. A God spelled with a small g, but God nonetheless. As the image of this little God took form, God saw that he had literally outdone himself. For there, before his own eyes, stood another God, an exact duplicate of himself, including size and shape. God had finally done it. He had thought the unthinkable, and by his word of faith, God had created a creature that was not even subordinate to himself. 
And boy, was God ever glad. For now he had a colleague whose nature was identical to his own. A guy who could think like him, be like him, and do almost, but not quite, everything that he could do. God called his carbon copy Adam, and he gave him dominion and authority over the entire creation. As a matter of fact, this creature has so much power that his creator could do nothing in the earth realm without first obtaining his permission. Adam was truly a super being. He could fly like the birds and swim under water like a fish, and that's not all. Without a spacesuit, Adam could literally fly through the universe. In fact, with just one thought, he could literally transport himself to the moon. Yet, even after creating a super being like Adam, God was not fully satisfied with his accomplishments. Somehow, he just knew that a piece of the puzzle was still missing. So, putting his mind into overdrive, God began brainstorming once more. And then, in a flash, it dawned on God, why hadn't he thought of it before? Adam was made in his image, so obviously he was as much female as he was male, right? So why not double his pleasure and double his fun? Why not separate the male part from the female part? Not wanting to waste a single moment, God charged into action, causing a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. God opened him up, removed the female part from the male part, (laughs) and made a being of surpassing beauty. He made woman, man with a womb, and he called the womb man Eve. This time, God had clearly gone too far. He had actually brought into existence the very beings that would one day get him kicked off the very planet he had created. As incredible as it may seem, these super beings would one day turn on their creator and relegate him to the status of the greatest failure of all time. You see, long before God had visualized planet Earth into existence, he had also created a whole other world full of beings called angels. One of these angels was a being of such breathtaking beauty and brilliance that he was named Lucifer, the morning star. Lucifer had great ambitions. In fact, he wanted to take control of everything God had ever visualized into existence. He wanted to become exactly like the Most High. Well, because of this treason, Lucifer was cast out of heaven and renamed Satan, the deceiver. Tumbling down from the mother planet where God lived, Satan landed on the replica that God had spoken into existence. He landed on planet Earth, the very planet on which Adam and Eve would one day live. There he lay in wait for the opportunity of the ages, the opportunity to get back at God. And then one day, opportunity came knocking. Not long after God had spoken Adam and Eve into existence, Satan spied them standing naked in the middle of the Garden of Eden. Satan instantly transformed himself into a servant and cunningly tricked the two little gods into committing cosmic treason. For just the price of an apple, Adam and Eve sold their godhood godhood to Satan. The devil, through Adam, became the god of this world. Alas, not only did Adam and Eve lose their nature as gods, but they were actually infused with the very nature of Satan himself. Adam had become the first person to be born again. He was born with the nature of God and born again with the nature of Satan. In one blinding instant, the first man and woman who had ever lived were transformed from divine to demonic. Immediately, they became susceptible to sin, sickness, suffering, and more importantly, spiritual death. In fact, Eve's body, which like Adam's was originally made to give birth out of her side, underwent a radical transformation. From that moment on, she and her female offspring would bring forth children from the lower region of their anatomies. In that fateful moment, Adam and Eve were summarily barred from Eden, and God was banished from the earth. Satan now had legal rights to the earth and all her inhabitants, and God was left on the outside desperately searching for a way to get back in. 
God in a flash had become the greatest failure of all time. Not only had he lost his top-ranking angel, as well as a third of his other angels, but now, in addition, he had lost the first man he had ever created, the first woman he had created, the whole earth, and the fullness therein. But as they say in baseball, <clears throat> it ain't over till it's over. God was not yet ready to throw in the towel. He had that winning attitude and refused to let go. Realizing that he needed man's invitation to get back into the earth, God immediately went to work. And after thousands of years, God finally found an old boy named Abraham, who took the bait and became the vehicle through which God, if he was lucky, may one day win back the universe he had lost. You see, through Adam, you see, through Abraham, would eventually come a second Adam, who would reverse the consequences of Satan's deception. This Adam, if all went according to plan, would return to man his godhood, and to God his good earth. Well, in time, God got Abraham to strike a deal with him. In fact, God and Abraham became blood brothers and forged a covenant that would gain Abraham health and wealth and regain for God a foothold in the world he had created. God's plan was to make Abraham the father of all nations and to produce from his seed another Adam, who would regain the turf that was lost by the first Adam. In keeping with his word, God made Abraham very, very wealthy. And then once again he proceeded to visualize. Through God's mind raised images of a brand new Adam, a man who would one day restore to him his rightful place in the universe and who would forever banish his arch-rival Satan from the kingdom. And then it happened. One fine day, the image of this Savior coalesced in God's mind. Without hesitation, God began speaking into existence the picture of the Redeemer he had painted on the canvas of his consciousness. Excitedly, God positively confessed, The Messiah is coming! The Messiah is coming! As God's Spirit hovered over a little woman named Mary, the confession began to take shape before his very eyes. The spoken word became legs, arms, eyes, hair, and then presto, there before God's own eyes emerged the body of the second Adam. The second Adam was named Jesus, and as Abraham's descendant, Jesus was wealthy and prosperous. He lived in a big house, handled big money, and even wore designer clothes. In fact, Jesus was so wealthy that he actually needed a treasurer to keep track of all his money. Jesus, who was a whiz at speaking things into existence, showed his disciple how to master the art of positive confession. Thus, they too experienced unlimited health and unlimited wealth. The fact is that some of his followers caught on so well that they became rich beyond comprehension. The Apostle Paul, for example, had so much money that government officials would work feverishly to try to get a bribe out of him. Jesus also overcame every trick and temptation that Satan could throw his way. Despite the fact that he never claimed to be God, God's, Jesus succeeded in living a life of sinless perfection. When all was said and done, Jesus passed the test that the first Adam had failed. And then at the prime of his life, Jesus entered a garden, a garden much like Eden, where the first Adam had lost his godhood. In this garden, called Gethsemane, Jesus moved into the final stages of a process that would transform him from an immortal man to a satanic being and would in turn recreate men as little gods who would no longer be subject to the scourge of sin, sickness, and suffering. As part of the process, Jesus would have to die a double death on the cross. He would have to die spiritually as well as physically. If physical death had been enough, the two thieves on the cross could have atoned for the sins of mankind. No, the real key was spiritual death and suffering in hell. And then one day on a cruel cross, the crystal Christ, the paragon of virtue, was transformed into a defiled demoniac. The lamb became a serpent and was ushered into the very bowels of the earth. There Christ was tortured by Satan and his minions, and all hell laughed. 
Little did Satan know, however, that the last laugh would be on him. For just as Adam had fallen for Satan's trap in Eden, now Satan had fallen for God's trap in hell. You see, Satan had blown it on a technicality. He had dragged Jesus into hell illegally. The truth is that Satan had completely forgotten to take into consideration the fact that Jesus had not actually sinned. You see, Jesus had merely become sin as a result of the sin of others. Alas, Satan and his demonic host had tortured the emaciated, poured out little wormy spirit of Christ without legal rights. And this was exactly the opening God had been looking for. So seizing the moment, God spoke his faith-filled words into the bowels of the earth. Suddenly, the twisted, death-wracked spirit of Jesus began to fill out and become back to life. He began to look something like the devil had never seen before. There, in the sinister presence of the evil one himself, Jesus began to flex his spiritual muscles. As a horde of whimpering demons looked on, Jesus whipped the devil in his own backyard. He snatched Satan's keys and emerged from hell as a born-again man. God had pulled off the coup of the ages. Not only had he tricked Satan out of his lordship using Jesus as the bait, but he had also caught Satan on a technicality through which Jesus could be born again. But that's not all. You see, because Jesus was recreated from a satanic being to an incarnation of God, you too can become an incarnation, as much an incarnation as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And as an incarnation of God, you can have unlimited health, an unlimited wealth, a palace like the Taj Mahal with a Rolls Royce in your driveway. And if I could shock you, and maybe I should, you, my friend, are a little Messiah running around on earth. All it takes now is to recognize your own divinity. You too can harness the force of faith. Never again will you have to pray, thy will be done. Rather, your word is God's command. By simply using your tongue, you can literally speak whatsoever you desire into existence. And then you can live happily ever after on this planet of prosperity. Hank Hanegraaff put that together from the teachings of uh, the different faith, word of faith teachers. Uh, it has, again, it has all the uh, references and stuff where these have been taught either in their books, in their sermons, or on their TV program and stuff. That should be very disturbing to you in so many ways. Um, in defense of many of these writers I've had Christian and these teachers I've had Christians tell me, well, they may be off on one thing, but they're good people. That is a very disturbing statement to me also. The Bible makes it very clear that you can't get good water out of a well that's salty. It doesn't produce both kinds. Uh, So, in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these teachings. And and a lot of these things, I will have the different, like I did tonight, I'll have the different uh, references for you where you can find them. And The point is, this is a very serious thing. To me, it's more serious than, than even the, the non-Christian groups that we talked about. Because these are exactly what Paul says. These are ravenous wolves who are among the flock. And they're not here to spare the flock. They're here to build up disciples for themselves. And church, if we ever need a time of discernment, we need it right now. So, 
let me close this out tonight. And you say, and I'm going to be disturbed for three weeks till we get to the next thing. Good. Go. Again, I'm not asking you to go to any website to read what people say about Benny Hinn, about any of these guys. Read what they say. You don't have to read what someone says about them. Read what they say. So why, what is the instruction that Paul gives us as we close out tonight? Very quickly, back in Acts chapter 20. Back in Acts, and there's three things I just want to share with you very quickly. Remember what Paul says. Paul says, he says this, he says, I, I have been warning you day and night in tears. Well, his first instruction that he gives us there in verse 28 in, back in Acts chapter 20 is this. He says, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Who's the to yourself? Well, he's talking to teachers, to pastors, to overseers, to bishops. And he says, you need to be careful. You need to be on your guard. You have been made the under-shepherd of the church. And you need to take heed. You need to beat off the ravenous wolves. You need to make sure that's what what's taught in the church where God has put you as a spiritual leader. He's talking to the pastors here. That what is taught there is doctrine, is truth, is biblical. And if it's not, you need to stand up and say so. Now, we live in a different time. In Paul's time, it was... Can I say this? It was relatively easy. If some, some charlatan came along in, in a church, in a town, in a community... You could spot them out. You could point them out. You could say, you get out of here. And they would leave. Or they'd have to leave, okay? And you probably never see them again. Never hear from them again. We live in a different time. We live in the age of information. We live in a time where people see something on the internet. And, and I said this last Sunday and I'll say it again. And simply because it's on the internet, it must be true. That being said, we live in a time of very, what I would call very low discernment also. We're personality driven in the church. If we like somebody, if we like what they say, we tend to follow them. We don't follow the truth as much as we follow personalities. And we gotta get back to following the truth. Okay? So, Paul's instruction is for pastors to protect the flock from the wolves. So, just so you know, and many of you already know where I stand on some of these things, when I find a book that's written by one of these guys, it's gone. Uh, if someone were to teach in their Sunday school classes some of these things, they would be gone. Uh, I, I have zero tolerance for false prophets and false teachers. Zero tolerance. We're talking about souls here. And should you bring up some of these guys when you're saying something, then you're quite likely to hear me say something like, but they are this or they are that. You've got to know where this is coming from. The second thing that Paul tells us in verse 29 through 30 is that he wants us to know the nature of these false things. These are not just poor kind of misguided people. Paul says they are ravenous wolves. They're there to destroy the flock. A wolf does not take care of the flock ever. Do you understand that? Ever. A wolf will eat the flock. 
And he has no consideration for the flock. And many of these neo-Christian, I call them neo-Christian groups, what they like to do is they come into to fellowships, they'll, they'll come in and they'll move through a fellowship very quickly, they'll get what they can, and they'll leave as quickly as they can, and they'll leave devastated souls behind them. And, and you know what? Our whole culture set up for this. Because all, we automatically associate truth and legitimacy to large ministries, uh, rich ministries, Certainly they wouldn't be on TV if they, there was something wrong with them. That's the way we think. And yet remember what Paul says, many there will be who will follow. And he wants you to know their natures. Their nature is they're wolves. And wolves among the sheep is never a good thing. Ever. Everybody got that? So he calls the pastor to protect the flock just like by, by pointing out this person is a false prophet. You've read, I know you've read Paul's letters. We've studied them. How many times at the end of many of his letters he points out, stay away from this guy. Stay away from this guy. This person's already left me. This person's already done harm to me. This person's actually done harm to the gospel. He calls them by name. You know, and, and probably the biggest controversy I've had in my whole ministry over 30 years is when I call names. People get so upset. I just can't believe you're so unchristian to call their names. Their names need to be called. Because they are not anything but ravenous wolves. Okay? The last thing. Verse 32 and, uh, 31 and 32. He, he gives us all instruction. He says this. He says, watch. This is my three things I want you to get. Watch. Warn. It's not just for me to warn as a pastor, but you have, you have influence in people. Like many of you are Bible study teachers, you're small group leaders, you're, you have influence in your own kids' life, whether or not you're leading any formal group or not. And you need to warn them that some of these people are what they are. And the last thing he tells us in this passage is that we have to stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. It is our protection against deceit. It's our protection. It is, a, it is the one unchangeable in our life. I, even we're not unchangeable. We feel one way one day and we feel one way another day. But the Word remains constant and consistent. Does it not? Truth doesn't change. So you can always trust the Word. So, in the weeks ahead, after the next couple of weeks, in the weeks ahead, uh, look in your bulletin from this morning. We're going to be talking about everything from, from name it, claim it type things to no true Christian should ever be sick type theology to you are your own gods. You'll hear some quotes that you will not believe. That God, you don't answer to God. God actually answers to you. And that you're as much a God as God ever was. Okay? All the way to the, to the, you should be, if you had enough faith, you would be driving the biggest car, have the biggest house, and God intends for you to be rich. And actually, as, you, as, as Linda read, Jesus was rich. You know? I mean, he had a, he had a, a uh, what do they call him saying? A, a uh, treasurer. Had a treasurer. Had so much money, he had to have a treasurer. 
Well, you can look at it the other way. Sometimes you have to have you have so little money, you better have a treasurer. Oh, you just misunderstood that. <laughs> some of the things you're going to hear are incredible. I'm asking you, church, if there's ever time for the church to be discerning, because information is just bombarding people today. It's hard to stay ahead of this. And I'm going to say this, the same thing I said about the, the non-Christian groups. You don't have to know everything that these people teach. Just like you don't have to know everything that false religions teach. You don't have to know. What you have to know is the truth. So that when you hear that which is false, you know it. You're not required to study all these false... We're going to spend some time looking at them. But you're not required to study and know everything about them. What you, you and I are required to do is study the word and know the truth. So that when we hear that which is false, we know it to be so. I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me tonight. We're going to close out our time in prayer. And uh, let's just ask God to give us wisdom, understanding. And, and again, once again, just hearts after Him and His truth. Father, we do thank You for the way that You love us. We do thank You that, that uh, You are our, our Heavenly Father. You are our Creator that you love us beyond all measure. And Father, we, we acknowledge as a church, you have never failed in anything. You have never been taken by surprise, and you don't even answer to anybody. You are a sovereign God. We praise you for that. Your word is true. It's eternally true. And we praise you for that. And we praise you for the fact that your son Jesus came and took on the flesh of his own creation and he lived among us and he died for our sins. On the cross, he paid the price for our sins. And on that third day, he rose from the dead. We praise you for that truth. Lord, I just pray for your church. Keep us safe, not only from the groups from the outside, but even more so, as your apostles said, from the wolves that are within the body of Christ. Give us discernment. Give us understanding. Give us such a hunger for your word that we can't go a day without it. And as you speak your words into our lives, as we feast upon the word, Father, may it nourish us. May it equip us. May it do what it, exactly what you said it would do. It will equip us for every good work. Father, thank you for the love you have for us. Thank you for your church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.